Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled, strategized, and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my good friend, and one of the most prolific and talented film producers alive, Stacey Scher. Stacey is a two-time Academy Award nominee, and her film credits include Aaron Brockovich, Pulp Fiction, Django Unchained, Garden State, Get Shorty, many others, and most pertinently today in these corona times, Contagion. Her films have done over $2 billion in the box office, and beyond that, she's an amazing mom, an incredible community leader, and somebody who really leads by example. Welcome to the podcast. Stacey, thanks for coming. Hi, Jeff. You've been producing film and television for 30 years. I have been producing film and television for 30 years. So mentor really means old. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I say, I say that number 30. I don't know how it's real or it's true. I mean, did you start when you were in high school? I love you. Um, You know, it's funny. I actually think of you guys, part of why we became part of the summit community was meeting all of you all. And it was before any of you guys had your own kids and, and my kids were little and I wanted them to meet people who were young that had a passion for doing positive things in the world. And so that really was a big part of us becoming part of the community. Well, thank you. And, and that's also, you know, a a part of your, uh, history of work that really is inspiring, whether it's, you know, the, the, the Academy award-winning documentary that you executive produced that was co-produced with your daughter, Maggie period end of sentence last year, or it's, you know, some of our favorites like Aaron Brockovich or Django Unchained or, you know, and, and especially in the days of coronavirus contagion, um, you know, a lot of your films, a lot of your actions have always had a deeper underlying social mission. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's always been important. Um, For me, I've always been drawn to stories that kind of explore the human condition. And, you know, even if they're um, really personal stories in in any genre, whether they're a thriller, whether they're a comedy um, or an action movie, I think exploring character and exploring issues through really entertaining genre is the best way to impact um, the thinking of the world not to be too high-minded and that sounded really awful and pretentious, but I don't think so. I mean, but, but why you Stacy, how did this happen? How, why are you like, as I understand it, the producer is essentially like the COO, like you're, you know, you have to literally figure out all the different components, you know, no job too big, no job too small, just to make these huge productions happen. Like I said, in the intro, you've been, you know, making movies since like the nineties, but what set you apart? How did you get into this space? Well, look, I think it's particularly as a woman in this business, um, and and obviously we all reevaluate these gender ideas, particularly now with everything that's going on. But 
producer was the job besides actress that women had. So I didn't know this. Well, yeah, I went to graduate film school in, in 1986, something like that. And um, when I was still in college, I wanted to go into sports broadcasting. And I had an internship at WRC and um, the George Michael sports machine was there. And I, I had a summer internship and it was, you know, it was the eighties and I decided it was too tough. I, I didn't want to push my way into locker rooms you know, where people really didn't want women at the time. And that wasn't my thing. And so I always joke that I, I then set off into that really inclusive feminist world of film and television. Um, but again, I grew up at a time when you weren't filled with um, entertainment shows or knowing about the industry and this sort of insider point of view that we have on everything. I just really was a film geek and my dad loved movies and it was our crossover point. We watched old movies together. We were the house that, you know, went to raging bull opening weekend, you know, not necessarily a, a family film. And there's this sort of famous fight in my family about the movie jaws. I was going to summer camp and I said to my mom, please don't go see jaws without me. Because at that point, movies used to run for the whole entire summer because they're, you know, they didn't come out for three or four or five weeks. And, and I was going to camp for eight weeks. And she literally went to go see it that day after she dropped me off to go to summer camp. Wow. And of course, you couldn't see movies so easily then. You know, it wasn't this on demand 24-7 world. And did she just not want to break your heart and just say, Hey, I can't, I can't promise this. I just don't know. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds very disappointing. I'm sorry that you went through that. It's, it's just become this like epic thing in my family. And, um, so I finally saw it when I was in college and I, and I, in this, the first film class I ever took, which my film professor, his name was Douglas Gomery and he had been, um, a mentee of um, Tino Ballio, who is a cinema scholar out of the University of Wisconsin. And he told me about the Stark program. He was a trustee at AFI. I knew no one in the film business, nobody in my family. And at that point, I was at a loss. I knew I didn't want to go into sports anymore. I had no idea what I was going to do. And he said, there's this relatively new program at USC, and it's for producers, and you love film, and I think you would really like it. And it was sort of divine intervention because they only took 25 kids a year and they took very few. They only took three of us that had come right from college. And I was one of the three in my year. So um, it was an incredible opportunity. And do you pick, do you have a, a sense for great projects or great people? Or like, I just look at, we've been friends for a long time. And, you know, I know many of the movies that you were a producer or an executive producer of that I love, but I'm just looking at it right now, like Reality Bites, Pulp Fiction, Get Shorty, Gattaca, Out of Sight, Man on the Moon, Aaron Brockovich. You've made How High and Along yes. Came Polly and Garden State and Django and, 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 and is I guess my point. And so, you know, like it seems overwhelming and kind of impossible as like a body of work. Do you think like, what, where, where does it begin? Like, do you, is it a sense for people that are great to work with or creative projects that you think will be hugely important? Is it a, how do you do this? I've kind of isolated it into three buckets and, and I will say having such um, diverse taste earlier and midway through my career wasn't necessarily that helpful, you know, because the way that things sort themselves in, in the business world are, you know, this person's great. They're the action movie person or this person's the romantic comedy person. And like, what are they, you know? And look, Jersey was a magical partnership that because of Danny's um, stature as a director and an actor, this was your first sort of uh, collaboration with Danny DeVito and it was at Jersey films. Is that what? Yes, that was, we had a company for 12 years. Um, Danny DeVito, Michael Schamberg and I called Jersey films. I went there right after my first real job in the business where I worked for two producers, Deborah Hill and Linda Opes, which is where I first met Richard Legravenet when we did um, the Fisher King and where, when I worked on my first film adventures in babysitting. So 
that was, you know, I spent six years really learning and, and working in development and the kind of jobs that, you know, women regularly got reading, doing notes, working with people. And, and one of the great things that I was encouraged to do was not just read the terrible scripts that I was getting submitted, um, but also read the great scripts and the classic scripts. And then I had the other thing is, and I think this is true for any industry, which is really getting to know the people who are coming up with you. Because the screenwriter of Adventures in Babysitting, which was the movie that got me my first job, was a person who was named David Simpkins, who was writing, um, which was his night job while he was working his day job at a company called New World, which, um, you know, made schlocky um, movies like, you know, Angel, Hollywood, High School Student by Day, Hollywood Hooker by Night, you know. Um, and he worked in the physical production department and he was writing scripts. And I met him through a friend of mine and he ha did have an agent. But when he wrote this movie that he said was basically going to be After Hours for Kids, which the Martin Scorsese movie, which had come out at that time. And he had sent me like a a page and it weirdly, it ended up becoming the um, movie poster. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? Think again. And it was sort of a play on like an anti-drug ad. And in the poster, it was like, you know, these young kids and a babysitter hanging off the side of a building in Chicago. But um, getting to know your peers, which was really important to me and, and the people that I knew met in my first years were like, Ed Solomon, who wrote Bill and Ted's Big Adventure in Men in Black, and Shane Black, who did Lethal Weapon, and my friend Scott Frank, who I've done a ton of movies with, and who wrote and directed Godless, and um, who wrote Get Shorty and Out of Sight, and um, Minority Report, and, and more recently, um, oh, the last uh, Wolverine movie. I like to think of it as, as like a Western X-Men movie. Logan is the one he wrote. It's wonderful. It's like an hour of just watching Hugh Jackman get lit up. Yes, it, it's it a is. great movie. Um, but it is a classic genre film, which is something that Scott does really well. But those are all of, you know, my friends. And another one of my friends that I met around that time was David Fincher as well. And so I used to talk a lot about, you know, we all just watched movies all the time and talked about movies all the time. And, you know, and I had different friends who helped me explain my own taste to me in addition to reading these other great scripts. And I remember, you know, Shane Black helped me write my first set of story notes on Adventures in Babysitting. And um, he also would give me scripts to read that were great by great writers. And um, I, I, David explained why I liked the color palettes of the, like what appealed to me in the, in the cinematography style of things that I always was drawn to. And, um, I even got to see Ed Solomon do stand up comedy at UCLA once, but, um, it, it was, you know, it was a fun time. It's like any time in the beginning of, you know, the, the late eighties and nineties were a great kind of resurgence. It was before entertainment was mature business. It was, you know, there seemed to be an endless amount of demand. And uh, people were going to the movies. They love going to the movies. And, and I always think about Reality Bites as this perfect time capsule before we were able to be reached everywhere all the time. Yeah. So it was in that time period um, where, you know, and, and we'd see the Wall Street people come in and out when other businesses, businesses would bust. And I think it was also before the entertainment industry was owned by conglomerates. So um, there was less of a quarter to quarter management pressure and you could develop talent. But those were kind of the, you know, filmmakers like Kubrick and Scorsese and Howard Hawks and um, Hal Ashby and Hitchcock, you know, um, Sidney Lumet, Sidney Pollack. You know, these are the films, the filmmakers that I really grew up loving. And that kind of 70s filmmaking really influenced the kind of people I was drawn to. And I could never work on things that I didn't love unless I found a way to make it something that I loved. You know, whether it was a weed comedy like How High, to me, it, that sort of falls into like the classic outsider anarchist comedy, just looking at it culturally in a different way and, and looking at sort of societal norms while smoking your dead homie. Yeah. While smoking your dead homie, you know, I remember one line from that movie. If you uh, study high and take the test high, you get high scores. 
Yeah, it's really great having that movie to quote when you have an 18-year-old. Yeah, I'm sure on his way to college for the first time. Yeah. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go back to 94, 95, because you had just a huge, you know, 500 days. You executive produced Reality Bites, Pulp Fiction, and Get Shorty. Correct. Yes. For one, what is? I don't even know what I just said to you. How did? How is that possible? Well, I mean, look, we had been working on those three movies for a really long time. Um, I read Reservoir Dogs when it was a script. There was um, there was this thing called the future films and production charts that were in Variety and in the Hollywood Reporter every Tuesday, I think. And I used to scour them as part of my job and see if there was a film getting made with known elements. And I didn't know the writer or director, I would get the script or check out a short film or do stuff. And that was kind of the way that I looked for new filmmakers at that time when those were the resources. So, you know, I saw this script by a person I'd never heard of that had an extraordinary cast. And I got the script, read it right away, kept trying to meet Quentin. And I have a great friend who um, is a a terrific writer showrunner named Chris Brancato and he was roommates with Lawrence Bender and we were really close friends and he knew that I was trying to meet Quentin and we were at the, and the movie hadn't started shooting yet, Reservoir Dogs. And Chris and I were at the premiere of Terminator 2 in 1991 in July. And 
we were talking to my other friend, Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, which also hadn't come out yet. And Harvey Keitel was with us because Callie, because Harvey was in Thelma and Louise and they were friends. And a person started to approach Harvey and Chris turned to me and said, Stacey, I'm about to make your night meet Quentin Tarantino. And we became really close friends from that moment on. And while we at Jersey offered him a book to adapt, um, which he passed on, we made what's known as a blind deal for his second film. And the only thing that he said about it was that it was three films that are one film. And that was Pulp Fiction. And, uh, you know, it came in at a, I, I think like it was 160 pages and it said final draft. And is that short for a screenplay? No. That's and long for a screenplay. That is long for a screenplay. The average screenplay is like 120 pages. It, it used to be that the rule was a page a minute. And so you were going for a two hour movie. So 120 page script. Um, but we had the ability because of Danny's stature to make these kinds of deals where we had this thing that was called a discretionary fund for our development. So a lot of the movies that you're talking about were the things that we set up on our own that nobody was necessarily interested in buying straight out. Um, Reality Bites, definitely Pulp Fiction, definitely Garden State, Definitely Aaron Brockovich, um, Freedom Riders, and also the World Trade Center movie were all developed out of this discretionary fund. And how high, I will add. Incredible. And were they all similar and where you found great talent and you said, I want to give you sort of this blind deal structure? I'm not familiar with it, but I mean, what a brilliant call on, you know, talent. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it was in the case of Aaron Brockovich, which, um, it's the 20 year anniversary of Aaron Brockovich, um, the 25th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. But in the case of Aaron Brockovich, Carla Schamberg, Michael's wife met the real Aaron through her chiropractor. And, you know, most of us are always getting hit on like your dentist tells you, oh, I know this person who would be, you know, has a great movie in them or my son-in-law's cousin's uncle wrote a script. Will you read it? So we kind of shut down to that a little bit. And, um, but seriously, my son-in-law's cousin's (laughs) uncle's script is fantastic. (laughs) I bet it is. And Carla wasn't so jaded and she met the real Aaron. And, you know, we always joke, um, she pitched the idea to Michael, her husband, and he said, that's a horrible idea. She said, I'm going to get Julia Roberts to play this woman. And Michael said, you'll never get Julia Roberts. And that's a horrible idea. And then she said, well, I'm going to go talk to Stacy about it. And, you know, Aaron, who, you know, and who I think I introduced you to. You You certainly did. Aaron was a lot less of the super confident superhero that she is today. She was, she was still a superhero, but, um, Everything was a lot more recent and raw and we pitched every studio in the world and everyone passed on it. And so we were able to just option her life rights and Ed's life rights out of this fund, then hire a writer and then, you know, move it along until we finally got Steven to read um, the rewrite of it written by Richard Legravenez. Again, a polish that he did out of our own money, out of our own fund that, that, you know, we had from Universal by that point which got Julia and Steven, he read it while we were doing some reshoots on Out of Sight. So, um, you know, relationships are important. It sounds like the most, it's like you have a gang that just like would get called into these different projects that all these, all these various elements end up coming together to to bring these things into reality. Yeah. And, and I think, look, it's funny. I was listening to Barry Sonnenfeld's memoir the other day, um, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, which is really entertaining, particularly if you know Barry and you've worked with him. Um, He directed Men in Black and he directed Get Shorty. And he was telling the story of how we had a potential green light finally for Get Shorty, which was set up. All these movies were originally set up under our deal at TriStar, and they didn't want to make any of our movies. What they really wanted was a Danny DeVito starring vehicle. And the fact that he was very focused on producing kind of from a business point of view was not what they really were looking for. I think what they thought they were getting when they got Jersey Films was a vanity actor, director company. And what Danny, because he's a true artist, was really interested in was setting up this kind of haven for filmmakers. And so it was perfect for me. You know, he was a final cut producer, which meant that 
the studio couldn't recut the director's movie. Danny had that final cut, which he never would impose upon a director. So we were able to give these newer voices real protection of their artistic vision. And what were you like? What is what are your superpowers? You know, no is not an option. So I always try to figure out a way. Um, I think that I have an ability to hold the whole equation in my head and remind people of what our intention was when we started out, you know, because uh, I remember when I was working on the Fisher King with Terry Gilliam and he would say, you know, at a certain point, the process of making the movie can distract you from what the movie was that you were making originally. And you, you kind of stop reading the script and so I think that was a really great lesson from him very early on in my career. And and getting to work with somebody like Terry with such a strong vision and and, and learning how to kind of look out for that. Um, and I think that on different movies, you learn different things. You know, on um, Out of Sight, I realized that sometimes even the director can lose the thing that's really important to them from pressure from the outside world. And I had been so built up into that point to just support the director's vision or the writer's vision. And we were working on a cut and a studio executive really wanted all of us and Steven to cut the scene um, out of the movie where George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez talk after having just slept together. And the, the, argument was the movie's dragging, it doesn't move the story forward, all this stuff. And and I was blessed to work with the great Ann Coates, who edited and won an Oscar for Lawrence of Arabia and who just passed away last year. But um, she was astonishing. And, you know, she also cut Aaron Brockovich, but we were working with her on Out of Sight. And at that time, we were still cutting film reels and, and finishing on projecting on film, even though we were editing on an Avid. And she called me up. It was time for her to cut negative. And she said, I refuse to cut negative and cut that scene until you take one more shot at him. And I remember I was with Richard Legravenez and, you know, we were already working on Aaron and he and Steven had become close and and they went on to, to do um, behind the candelabra together. Um, but I was in Richard's hotel room going with him to the premiere of a film that he had done. I feel like it may have been The Horse Whisperer, but I can't remember the year. Um, And I called Stephen and Richard said, let me pick up the phone after Anne had called me. And he said to him, that scene makes it a Steven Soderbergh film. And, And we're all so relieved that we didn't just go along and thank God for her saying, hey, you have to remember what this movie was. And that's what makes it special. So you learn on every movie. Yeah. So it sounds like you, one, have never met a task that you can't, you know, uh, overcome. Uh, You know, it's like we need a live volcano to erupt for this film to really feel like it's a live volcano. You somehow figure out how to conjure that. Um, It sounds like you, you know, are a real artist's producer, the way that you're so conscientious about the story and the narrative and the purpose, you know, is not often, you know, the strong suit or the superpower I would imagine of the producer of any enterprise. And then then it sounds like you're, you know, really open to not having the answer um, and empowering the voices around you. It sounds like you've, you know, dedicated a lot of your time and energy and love to building this community of creatives that you make these things with Um, And it sounds like every one of these different stories, someone else saves the day in a sense. Well, I think it, it definitely takes a village, you know, and I think um, a village, a network, I think we're all there for each other. You know, I think we come in and do stuff for each other on things that we're not working with. And sometimes I perform that role for somebody else on something that I'm not producing. And sometimes people are there for me. And, um, and I think that it's, because we share a love of, of cinema or cinema, television. I think television and cinema now often are, are blended. And I think that I've always, not to get too hippie right now, but you know, I, I definitely um, lean into the concept of the abundance of the universe. <laughs> and I don't hoard my friendships or my relationships. 
I like the people that I like to become friends with each other. It doesn't give me any kind of FOMO or it, it makes me happy to connect people and to be connected to people. So, um, so there's that. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you about contagion, you know, because here we are in uh, quarantine. You made this visionary movie, was it 2006? It was nine years ago. 2011. And what was the inspiration for making the movie? So it's a funny story that I think I've never told, which was Steven Soderbergh, Scott Burns, Michael Schamberg, um, my other former partner and I were literally developing a book about Leni Reifenstahl, um, Hitler's propagandist um, and, and filmmaker based on a, a great book called Leni. And Stephen had this great idea basically of doing, well, I, you know, maybe one day we'll make it. So I won't give away the fantastic way that he was going to tell the story of the Third Reich's propaganda machine and the their greatest artist who helped realize that. But anyway, Stephen wakes up one day and he, with this, he's, he has, he, he's extraordinary as an artist in that he always has had a tremendous sense of responsibility to the people who are financing his films and he really which is why he was so early 
to do something like make Candelabra for HBO before other feature directors were working in television. Um, it was released internationally as a theatrical film and went to the Cannes Film Festival. But he knew that the amount of money to release a film that could have been limited at that moment was not responsible. And he was like, nobody's going to go see this movie except for the four of us. And we can't make Laney. But Scott and I have been talking about this other idea. So let's all do that together instead. And Scott Burns' um, dad, um, who sadly just passed away, was really taken with um, the coverage of the bird flu and pandemics. And Scott also knew he had produced the Al Gore documentary An Inconvenient Truth with participant media. And so he had gotten to know this extraordinary person named Dr. Larry Brilliant, who at the time was running Skull Global Threats, who had founded google.org and um, is now on the board of Ending, ending pan- Pandemics. And probably everybody's seen him all over the news. Now he's been on CNN. He's been in a Wired article that everybody's forward, forwarded. And we're all really lucky to um, know him and, and count him as a, a dear friend. Um, he was also the person who was on the bus with the Grateful Dead as the doctor in Medicine Ball Caravan. But that's another story for another day. Anyway, Larry did this TED Talk about um, the World Health Organization and his role in ending the um, smallpox epidemic and the eradication of smallpox on the planet. And that had really caught Scott and Stephen's eyes. And Scott pitched Stephen the idea of doing a thriller about that was super real, you know, science fact, not science fiction, um, because all of the experts that we worked with through Larry would say to us on a regular basis, it's not if, but when. And the media definitely latched on to H1N1, um, but prevention and great fortune that it wasn't um, as strong as um, COVID-19 is, you know, kept it from becoming what we're experiencing now. And our advisors all served on the pandemic response teams for the government and the CDC. So Scott went about deeply researching, spending time with Dr. Ian Lipkin, who is the chair of the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia and who identified SARS and who was working on sequencing this virus in um, Beijing after the Wuhan outbreak, who identified Zika and who's been a, um, a lead. And he, he's the character that Elliot Gould is kind of modeled on. We also were introduced to people at the CDC and epidemiologists that perform um, similar roles. They're like medical detectives who are trying to trace contact trace um, and, that Kate Winslet's character was based on and people at the World Health Organization that Dr. Brilliant introduced Scott to that are similar to Marianne Cotillard's um, role. And all the way through, we looked at it from every angle, from a public health, like how things would play out, the public policy, the epidemiology, um, the impact on um, social um, norms and and what would happen. And um, the only thing we couldn't anticipate was the depletion of our stockpiles and not to get political or the dismantling of the CDC's pandemic preparedness and not really paying attention. But that was something that none of us could really fathom could happen. And I, and I wanted to ask, I imagine back then when you met these counterparts at the CDC, um, did they share that if not, you know, if, but when view on pandemics back in 2011? A hundred percent, which is why I have been wiping down my airplane area with people thinking I was a freak until now. Yeah. I had friends that I definitely made fun of who would fly with masks, uh, six months ago. I was like, okay, yeah. You know, like cool, but you know, it's, pretty breathtaking, you know, when you, when you talk about SARS and H1N1, like, you know, South Korea's response that invested, you know, tens of billions in 10 years into, you know, pandemic preparedness and response versus what we've seen here domestically. Well, we used to have that. I mean, make no mistake, we were extremely prepared and probably the most prepared. 
the ventilators that we made, the low cost ventilators that were developed are being sold elsewhere. Hmm. Um, Our stockpiles have been depleted. Our budgets were slashed and all of these things have happened since the 2016 election. That has nothing to do with impeachment hearings. Those happened Mm -hmm. long before that. So it's, we, the CDC was gutted. The people that used to work there are heart sick about it. Um, You know, we have an extraordinary, if if people want to follow great people for accurate scientific information, obviously Dr. Larry Brilliant, obviously um, the Mailman School of Public Health and Lori Garrett, who was on the Council for Foreign Relations and um, was another one of our advisors who wrote an extraordinary book called The Coming Plague. She was one of our advisors. And the crazy thing is you look at the news and Sanjay Gupta was himself on CNN interviewing Lawrence Fishburne, who is mm-hmm. a director of the CDC in the film. So it, it's interesting. It, you know, it definitely is surreal. You sent me a call in the Council on Foreign Relations call in that Larry and Lori did, and they were talking about how, you know, this is essentially like a two out of 10 in terms of the types of pandemics that, you know, could hit humans um, in terms of the deadliness factor. Um, whereas in the film, you certainly, you know, that was quite ratcheted up to what we're experiencing today. I'm curious though, you know, and then I, I do want to move on and talk about some of the other, you know, incredible pieces of work that you've, you know, produced in your career. But, you know, I'm curious because you, when you, whenever you focus on these things, they expand, right? It's not that you're like method acting, but you essentially, we all are, right? Whether we're method, method producing, method acting, you know, what we focus on is, is, you know, captured in our minds and that anxiety sits inside of us. Hopefully we all have practices to help deal with it, but it's pretty impossible not to be affected. And then you came out of the other side of it. Have you put any thought into what the other side of this looks like? Like how people recover, what you think is going to be overlooked just because you've, for this particular reason, have thought a lot more about it than the rest of us? Well, I I think that um, what's next is making people feel safe and actually not making them feel safe, but actually keeping them safe. So this doesn't happen again and refilling those stockpiles. And look, what's tricky about this virus versus SARS is that so many people are asymptomatic and caring and super spreading, you know, Um, what's better about this is that it versus SARS is less deadly, you know, Um, and it is as the scientists, this is an expression used by the scientists. Um, it's a relatively wimpy virus that is killed with, um, it's not like anthrax, which is impossible to kill, but this, you can kill with soap. Yeah. yeah, Regular soap. It doesn't have to be, you know, 40 seconds, hot water taking it's, it's, outer compound is mostly fat, which means that regular soap dissolves the grease and it gets washed down the drain. So, um, in that way, we're lucky. Um, but we also waited too long and we're not prepared. You know, I think that if you look at the incredible work that the governors and the mayors are doing of, of big states and cities, they're really rising to the challenge and fighting for their population. And we just have to do our part wash our hands, not go anywhere if we're sick and stay home. The main prevention things are are what they are. And, and you look at how people flatten the curve in other places. We just drop the ball from a, a big government, you know, for all the people that are always criticizing big government. Um, this is what big government is for. This is what healthcare is for. This is how people forget that it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter what your status is. We're all connected by a very fragile web. And, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I resonate so much with your values and and who you are and how you think. And I think that, you know, the score takes care of itself. And then you look at your body of work is how much expressing these narratives that are really important for people, you know, to understand in a way that's, that civilizes this information for them through film, through TV, through story, through through the means where we actually are versus where, say, a think tank or you know a higher education institution wants us to be, right? Like really meeting people where they're at and helping educate them about you know either who these people are or whether it's a historical character or a fictional historical character or, you know, true story. I know you just um, wrapped on the Aretha Franklin movie, Respect, correct? With Jennifer Hudson? Yes. 
looking forward to theaters being open again for that. We hope that um, by Christmas, people will be able to see it in theaters. And you also just finished uh, producing Miss America, correct? Or Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett on FX on Hulu. Correct. April 15th, um, the first three episodes come out and it is a look at the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment um, through the point of view of the second wave feminists and Phyllis Schlafly. So it's it's been, and, and really... It, it was born um, in the lead up to, um, I saw a great doc, maker's documentary on PBS this the summer before the 2016 election. And, you know, though growing up, I knew who Phyllis was. I really didn't know that much about her, except for the fact that she was um, a, a opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, and most people don't even realize that the Equal Rights Amendment is not part of the Constitution and was never ratified. I mean, more people are aware today because the last three states just ratified and and the push to ratify again started since the 2016 election. But um, I was really interested in telling the story from, I guess, the point of view of the spoiler and explaining how we kind of got here from there. And it, it's that battle was really in many ways the birth of um, the culture wars in our country and also certainly the birth of the organized um religious far right voting block in our country and their influence in politics. And you see it firsthand with your children's generation, like their activism, you know, through what they've been exposed to in their lifetime. You've, you've seen a direct like, you know, return on your creative investment in a sense, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I think that we just have tried to raise good citizens and it, it it's funny. They are activists and, Maggie's is more visible than Tyler's is certainly because I got involved in the pad project to support her um, and her group of friends at Oakwood school who were raising the money to make the documentary, you know, the sort of little choo-choo train that could. And it was always this joke, like, mommy, won't it be fun, funny if I win an Academy award before you do? And she did. Um, so, <laughs> so now actually um, I do want to add, I know it's a tough time for everybody, but we're trying to raise money to um, to keep the women who make the pads in Kathy Kara employed during uh, or taken care of during COVID while the, mach- the pad machines have had to shut down. So we're doing um, a mobile cause for them. Where can we learn more about that? Um, my Twitter feed or Pad Project's Instagram account. Okay, great. Any amount of money. We're just, all they need are $5,000 to keep them taken care of for three months in India. Well, I hope that if you have a couple bucks to spare and uh, you're listening to this podcast, you you know do as asked with Stacy. She gives more of her time and energy and capital um, to all of these causes that end up expressed through her, you know, her her work um, than just about anybody else I know in my in my network in my community. There's a core of of these you know folks that we've been lucky enough to meet in in LA in entertainment. Um, you know, who, who really are the shoulders that a lot of us stand on top of in terms of, you know, uh, content with purpose or, you know, these stories that have a deeper intention. Um, and, and I, you know, before we wrap, you know, I, I do want, you know, to ask you, you know, to, to help me frame that a little further, just your own perspective on this, you know, like you, you know, I, I think that with a lot of people, what, we're really lucky, you know, congratulations. You've broken the law of exceptionalism, whatever you had chosen to focus on, most likely you would have been great at, right? There's like savant artistic creatives that would have been terrible at everything else. I don't, you don't really strike me that way, Stacy. Like it seems that if you had chosen to be a doctor or an air traffic controller or anything else in this world specific to impact, you, you, you could have gone and done that. What, what do you think keeps you in this space that you're in? Why do you still tell stories? Why do you dedicate so much energy, time, capital, all of this to like make these things happen um, in this format? Um, I think that I've never gotten cynical about it. I think my love of film and television is almost religious. <laughs> um, I, I always tell like when kids ask me stuff about going into um, into the business, I would say, if you can imagine yourself being happy doing anything else, do it. And that's sort of my approach. I can't imagine myself doing anything else right now aside, you know, aside from activist things. Um, so 
for as long, I want to do this for as long as I feel that way about it. You know, as, as there's this great movie that's actually on the Criterion collection right now called the bad and the beautiful um, with Kirk Douglas. And it's about a producer and, and there's a star and a director and a writer, and they're talking about how horrible he is. And, and, the movie ends with them all waiting by the phone to take his call. And the whole thing has been a flashback of why they hate him so much, but you realize little by little he's made their whole entire career. And that was the first movie that they showed us the first weekend of um, the Peter Stark program at the school of cinematic arts at USC about, you know, this sort of burning passion that we all have to tell stories, you know? And, and I think when I first started your job was, to get your project made and get it made well. And I think now um, there's another layer of, of difficulty, which is to, to get it made, to get it made well, and to get it marketed well, because there's so much content that cutting through, you know, and, and many of the films that we made in the 90s at Jersey would live on television today, just because it's hard in the marketplace to cut through, but I, I think it's genuinely because I love the artistic form and it's, it's added so much to who I am and, and my understanding of a broader world before I could see a broader world when I was just, you know, a kid growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, counting the days till I could get out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And, and I guess that's, that's it. Well, Stacy, thank you. Thank you for, for all of the amazing films that you've, you know, put together over the last 30 years in television. And it's been formative for me and tens and hundreds of millions of other people. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see you in person. Let's do something egregiously social once uh, this whole, you know, quarantine is over. I, I can't wait. I can't wait for you. And, and I probably by the time we're done with quarantine, both kids to to hang out with you guys and my kids will be able to babysit for them by then. I can't wait. All right. But thank you, Stacy. Thank you for being on. Bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where Anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.